0: would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard again the military the industrial complex.
2: The questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth.
0: Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please, make yourself at home. To listen to tonight's full interview, you know what to do. Just go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. For less than a movie ticket per month, you can be equipped with invaluable knowledge. And that is priceless. Tonight's special guest is Dean Henderson, who will discuss big oil and their bankers in the Persian Gulf. Essentially, we will discuss the source of what is consuming this world, its resources, and the enslavement of its people. And what we can do, at a grassroots level, to change it. Right now, on Veritas. Dean Henderson was born in Fulton, South Dakota. He earned his master's degree in environmental studies from the University of Montana, where he edited the Missoula paper and was a columnist for the Montana uh, Cayman. His ant- articles have appeared in Multinational Monitor, in These Times, Paranoia, and several other magazines. A lifelong political activist and traveler to 50 countries, Henderson is co founder of the University of Montana Green Party and the Ozark Heritage Region Peace and Justice Network. He was vice president of the Central Ozarks Farmers Union and the president of the Howell County Democrats. In 2004, he won the Democratic nomination for U.S. House of Representatives in Missouri's 8th District. He's the author of many books, including Big Oil Under Bankers in the Persian Gulf, Four Horsemen, Eight Families, and their Global Intelligence, Narcotics, and Terror Network. It has become a global cult classic among conspiracy researchers, or as I say, parapolitical researchers, and it will be the focus of tonight's interview. To learn more about Dean Henderson's work, buy his books, read his weekly column, visit his website at deanhenderson.wordpress.com, which is also linked at ours. And I would like to welcome Dean Henderson, to very task. Hello, Dina. Welcome. How are you?
2: Hey, great, Mel. Thanks for having
0: me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I was telling you offline that uh, reading this book once again reminds me of of why the world is the way it is today: the subjugation of the entire planet, mainly to oil, to drugs, and, and other things. But why don't we just give a a quick background of yourself and how you started looking into these topics?
2: Well, sure, Mel. Um, that started as a master's thesis uh, back in 1989 in Missoula, Montana. Uh, I was get, I got my master's in environmental studies, and uh, it was started out. At, you know, we had the biggest, uh, I guess, per capita anti-war protests during uh, that time. That was the Gulf War, you know, way back then, and um, in Missoula. And I put out this alternative paper and. Um, as part of my, you know, getting my master's, and I started checking into, well, who owns the oil companies that are profiting from this Gulf War, you know, was what it was. And you start seeing the numbers coming in and how, you know, ConocoPhillips, 320% increase in profits, ExxonMobil, 600% increase in profits, you know, during this time and selling oil to both sides, sure.
0: And we're talking about can, the first Gulf War, right?
2: The first yeah. Gulf War, yeah. And so I guess the title of that thesis, another long title, you know, was uh, Gulf Cooperation Council, Regional Resource Security uh, uh, State for the Regime of International Capital Accumulation, RECA. said Rico, Right. <laughs> but still thugs. And uh, so anyway, that was a 144-page deal. And then I guess after I got my, you know, after I got through that, um, well, it was, you know, interesting to see how, you know, uh, One of my advisors, anyway, kind of balked when I found out that the Rockefellers actually owned four percent controlling interest of, you know, still Chevron, uh, Texaco, Exxon, Mobil, and BP, and um, other stuff about the Kuwaiti uh, Emmer's son uh, running drugs uh, through airports, and but even though these were facts and these were. Gosh, you know, it appeared in these uh, just mainstream newspapers, but it'd just be these little clips that you had to notice, and that's kind of the world out there. If you notice the little things, the little you know backstories and stuff, you can kind of piece these things together. In addition to knowing your history, of course. But um, anyway, I just so that interested me. Well, why would they, you know, balk at that? It's a fact, you know. that the people are so brainwashed, uh, you know, to, against believing in a conspiracy. Well, a conspiracy. It's happening right now between you and I, Mel. We're conspiring to have a conversation about these things. So conspiracy actually happens every day. It's just uh, it's perfectly normal. It, it's just if you have a hundred trillion dollars at your disposal, like the Rothschilds, and you cut a deal with the Rockefellers, um, and you're sitting in a boardroom, it can move the the earth. I mean, it can literally shake the earth, you know, uh, with that kind of money and that kind of power behind the conspiracy. So, of course, it just kind of logical that these people would accumulate this wealth. And as the saying goes, you know, wealth begets more wealth. So if these people had all this money way back then, well, gosh, they must have a lot of money now. And they do. And it turns out they're the, the people. So anyway, I got through my master's. I just kept reading, uh, traveling, uh, took stuff, you know. I'd clip clip things out of the Bangkok Post or, you know, to Tech uh, magazine in Guatemala whatever, you know, wherever you're at clip it out save it. it had a huge pile of you know papers i was plugging around with me um and more getting into the conspiracy aspects of it too you know freemasonry and the illuminati and uh you know reading jim marsh reading david ike uh, reading you know stuff like that reading a lot of probably over 100 books um during that period of time after my you know graduate degree and uh just this is where the book came from so um yeah i guess it's uh, everything i know um uh, about these, this thing uh, that's uh, controlling the planet, you know, and hopefully it can further the conversation and uh, hopefully it could be a research uh, document for quite some years to come is my hope, you know. Um, it's a very dense book. I know it's just very fact, just fact-filled, just fact and that some people it's too much. It's like, okay, yep, because if there was connecting sentences, there'd be 750 words instead of, you know, 450 or whatever. So... And at the first time I printed it I, I you know was back in the old days when they did three hundred copies and you had to you know literally pay for the paper and uh so you know you had to keep it down there but it's it's just dense and it's uh hopefully it's like i say a research document I think it's got nine hundred and thirty eight footnotes um in that book um and uh so it's not conspiracy theory anymore at that point
0: no and you crushed all your teeth and you dotted all your eyes a lot of people when we think of oil we think of the desert there was nothing there it was full of nomadic people there but then all of a sudden british petroleum and the united states came together and something happened in that area of the world can you take us back in time with the history of how oil exploded and why the middle east became what it is today
2: Sure, well, you know it was all about uh Standard Oil you know of California and uh, their big find uh, I believe it was nineteen forty three and um you know before that again, you yeah, had most of these shakes so nowadays uh they were pearl divers and uh laborers, and you know the British had just uh basically carved up the Ottoman Empire with the sykes pico agreement and different things right and um so you had british petroleum well, you had basically you had uh the Iranian consortium, um, the Iraqi, and uh, what came to be uh, known with the with SoCal's find as, later as Aramco in Saudi Arabia. Now Aramco uh, was Southern Standard, Oil of California, Southern Standard Oil of Southern California, which is you know became Chevron, cut in Standard Oil of New Jersey, which is now Exxon, and Standard Oil of New York, which is now Mobil.
0: And it used to be the, the, the Seven Sisters, right?
2: used to be the Seven Sisters. Uh, yes, Anthony uh, Sampson, correct. And that's where my my term that, that I'm coining uh, in the title of this book and throughout the book is the Four Horsemen is an updated version of, you know, Sampson's Seven Sisters, which hopefully will become a household phrase because it needs to be because that's why we're paying more at the pumps. It's just that simple. These companies, of course, now own everything from the wellhead to the pump. So. And everything in between. So, not to mention nuclear energy, coal assets, natural gas assets. Um, you know, so they not only have vertical integration within the industry, they have horizontal integration uh, throughout the energy sector. So uh, it's uh, anyway. What? Yeah. So, Aramco uh, was the Saudi uh, consortium of these companies. In um, the Iranian consortium, was controlled by British Petroleum, um, and uh, the Iraqi petroleum company was uh, also British Petroleum, um, along with uh, Shell, along with, uh, uh, I, I can't, I don't know how you pronounce it, it's Total now, Total is the company now, it's the French company, it used to be some Compagnie, something or other, I can't even pronounce it, but it's Total is what that became, Total Fina, and that's the big French conglomerate, and anyway, they carved this up this way, you know, these, these, these oil giants uh, met this castle, John Cadman's Castle, Scotland, BP and, and literally carved up the map and is just going to control what? I mean, that, that's how it happened meetings and, and, and agreements. Um, and they did and actually the Blair, um, uh, they were antitrust, uh, hearings into it. Uh, I think it was called the Blair commission at 55. Um, so they carved up these assets. They basically, uh, started pumping all and then came, you know, Bechtel and, you know, to build it all, um, along with, uh, Halliburton and, uh, you know, for Daniel was a big one back in those days. Um, and then came, um, you know, basically 13, uh, families, uh, controlling the Saudi economy, all of who were either selling refrigerators for Canmore or cars for Chevrolet or, you know, on and on and on. They became agents of us multinationals that then went in there. And then, uh, as the oil wealth uh, grew in Saudi Arabia, were able to sell these other things. And, uh, while most people languished in poverty and, you know, stuff. And, uh, yeah, so that that all sprang up uh, in Saudi Arabia and Iran as well. Uh, we backed the Shah of Iran, of course, uh, after the coup against Mossadeq in 53. Yeah. You know, we installed the Shah of Iran, he ruled till 79. We backed him, and, and actually Nixon called it the Twin Pillars Policy, which was Iran and Saudi Arabia. The Twin Pillars would always be providing oil for the United States and the West at a, you know, at, cheap cost, You know, they call them swing producers, but it just means you'll sell your oil cheap to the West. And, um, they did. And, um, there was, you know, a lot of brutality through it all, of course. And, uh, bloodshed and some of these countries ended up nationalizing their stuff, including Iran. Um, you know, and, because of that, and
0: uh, which you know, is so big, then what
2: happened.
0: Which is a big part, and let me just say, for the the four horsemen, correct me if I'm wrong, that's in the 80s and 90s, the, the, before that, there were the 13, I mean, the, the the seven sisters, but then they became the four, as we call it, four horsemen, ExxonMobil, Chevron Texaco, BP Amoco, and Royal Dutch Shell, correct? Correct. Now, Iran this is this is so pivotal here, what happened with Mossadegh. Uh, we 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 think of the Shah, but there was a Shah before Mossadegh. But give us a, some historical background of what happened in Iran when Mossadegh was elected by the people and how he nationalized oil and and what happened then?
2: Sure, well, yeah, he was democratically elected, and um yeah, he was uh, going to nationalize British petroleum assets and uh, you know give it give it to the people, and um, of course BP didn't like that, so they called in the Dulles brothers uh, Allen and uh, John Foster Dulles, um, who were both uh, attorneys at Sullivan and Cromwell at that time, and um, you know basically uh, they organized a coup, Kermit Roosevelt let it, you know, whatever great grandson of Teddy Roosevelt, I guess, and um yeah they they tossed them out um, mostly through propaganda and uh you know without much bloodshed and install the shah and um he ruled with an iron fist uh organized a secret police called sabak s-a-v-a-k is the acronym and they're notorious as the most brutal secret police in the world you know and um torture people kill a lot of people um so people had had it again by 79 and it wasn't uh it wasn't the Islamists that started that. It was the the leftists, the communists, that started that uh, business in the late seventies in the oil fields. There were strikes in uh, Kazakhstan, which is uh, you know where the big refineries are, and uh, you know they basically there was even assassination of a Texaco oil executive, you know, in that country. Um, so the left was just they wanted to nationalize oil, oh, get rid of the Shah. So basically, U.S. stepped in and uh, sort of facilitated the Shah, uh, uh, the Ayatollah, I mean, coming in, because they'd rather have the Ayatollah and the fundamentalists rule in Iran than they would the leftists. But in the end, it's all backfired because Iran has become more moderate and moved away from the, you know, and and um, you know, I think it's it's he's uh, definitely not a puppet of the United States anymore by any means. But the Ayatollah. Uh, for a while, was put to work. Uh, the first Ayatollah was, you know, given lists of leftists by the CIA, and he went out and assassinated them for us. So, um, crazy stuff. But so we lost the twin pillars in '79. We lost Iran, so we still had Saudi Arabia. So what's Reagan do? Comes around, he organizes the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, uh, United Arab Emirates. Um, and, um, you know, basically, the 42% of the world's oil sits beneath these tiny little emirates, which the British are. And to this day, British uh, special forces protect the royal families uh, in, this, in these countries. I mean, the best British special forces. And uh, they're all monarchies. Uh, you know, in qatar Qadar, it's, uh, the and, uh, you know, in it's the Al Thani family. Who installed—I don't
0: mean army. to interject, I apologize, but who installed no. those monarchies there?
2: Yeah, the British installed them. Yeah, the British installed them. And, uh, and in fact, the United Arab Emirates uh, didn't get its independence until 1973. Right. You know, people forget that. Wow, that's not very long ago. Um, so, yeah, so they organized this GCC and they become the next the the puppet, basically, of the West, the swing producer. And they're all, of course, single-family monarchies, women have no rights. Um, can't vote, you know? Um, you know, it's just crazy. It's like feudal systems in the Middle East, and that's our allies in the Middle East, and our enemies are actually the you know, countries that have democratic elections like Iran and Syria and you know, so forth. Yeah. So that says a lot right there, you know. Um, it's not a, you know, it's just what we do. It's what the United States has done since Monroe Doctrine and, and since World War II, especially on, on, on steroids, just overthrow people, put in people, you know, for the banks, for the corporations, for the families, for the for the shareholders, for the bondholders, whatever, and uh, we did it there. We did it, you know, and it, and it keeps backfiring. And uh, you know, the latest is the Ukraine, and and it's backfired. And you know, it's kind of uh, yeah, same old stuff in that respect. Uh, so there's a lot of that in the book because it is about you know not just oil, but it's about guns and drugs too, and those are the the three uh, biggest commodities um, money-wise in the world, and then you throw in the ownership of private central banks um, that these same people are involved with, then, wow, I mean, they do control pretty much everything that matters. And it's all based on death, destruction, um, you know, and depopulation and, and a lot of just nasty things because they're nasty people, if they're even people.
0: It, but that's their God. God, oil, and drugs. But th- yeah, you mentioned uh, John Foster Dulles and, and Alan Dulles. What a couple... And I didn't know this, and I'm glad that I, I read your book to find out that they were cousins of the Rockefellers.
2: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I remember finding that out when I was researching. I was like, whoa, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And that just, uh, again, there's a there's a, a nexus of international bankers in the CIA where they literally recruit the sons and daughters of bankers to be in the CIA. Or if you get high enough in the CIA, you might go work at Citibank next see and uh these families, so it's really it is about bloodlines, and they're very careful and meticulous about who they select as advisors and who they select as you know key people in intelligence and key people here and there and everywhere, so they're they're obsessed with bloodlines um and um yeah, they're cousins uh cousins of the rockefellers, and it, we all one of the funny things sometimes people oh you're exaggerating there there can't be eight families you know. That, control the Federal Reserve and all these other private central banks. And I go, Yeah, actually you're right, I am exaggerating. It's actually kinda of one family now because you know, they've really interbred to the point where, you know, the Goldman Sachs daughter marries the Kuhn Loeb son and the Warburg son marries the Rockefeller daughter and the Aldrich son marries the Stillman daughter and you know, it's just like this uh, what what Esquire magazine called the eugenics program for the for the Eastern uh elite, you know. Yeah. They called the, they called the skull and bones that, but it's kind of all like that, you know.
0: Inbreeding into
2: and, uh, one. Inbreeding into one, and, and it also maybe explains uh, why they're just, you know, not very smart. I mean, actually, it's kind of pathetic, but yeah. they're not. I mean... Thank
1: you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now